because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a movie podcast. <laughs> uh, my name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today we're talking about the 2007 Coen Brothers movie, No Country for Old Men. But we also have a very special guest today, uh, hailing from Texas originally, mm -hmm. a good friend of Laura's from middle school. Yes, the eighth grade. Welcome, Edward. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> He was real, waiting like, can I talk to be here? <laughs> yeah, you can. No, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is one of your favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not not one that I like really want to watch a lot, mm. but it's one I do return to pretty frequently, like probably once a year. Mm -hmm. It's one of those. Yeah. We've oh, got, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have a couple of those. Like the annual yeah. required viewing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It had been a while for us, actually. We it were had, trying yep. to track it and we hadn't seen it since 2013. Yeah. Oh, that's that is a while. Yeah. 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 That's right? long. It's longer than I would have expected. But it's, I mean, it felt fresh. Like it, it felt did. like it, I, it, stu it stuck with us that yeah. whole time. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we hadn't realized that seven years had passed almost uh, since we had seen it before. Yeah. This movie, I mean, this is this is routinely put in the, the sort of upper echelon of the Coen Brothers filmography, I think. And, um, so, um, and I think, like, Edward, you wanted to start us out with a preliminary question to sort of get, get things going. Is it? Uh, yeah, it's something that occurred to me when I was rewatching it and thinking about it. And, and this comes up for, for, I guess, assessing and analyzing movies of all sorts um, that are adapted from other material. Um, like when I, when I see people criticize a movie for a plot point or a character detail or, um, like a theme, like I wonder if is the criticism of that that element really directed at the movie itself, or is it directed at the source material? Mm -hmm. And and for a movie that is so renowned as being a very close adaptation of the novel by Cormac McCarthy, I just wonder: are like, are the things that I like about it like do the Coen Brothers really get credit for that? Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. I mean, because they, you know, got they got best adapted screenplay for it, and I think that's probably an earned award but at the same time uh like this isn't i don't think a very widely known fact but cormac mccarthy wrote this as a screenplay in the 80s and nobody wanted to produce it That's so and so he just wound up back like in the early 2000s reorienting it back into a novel do we and, know how um, it, how it came to be that the the cone brothers got this movie made like they, I think they actually started, they got an advanced copy of it. Mm. Um, so they were working on the idea of adapting, I think before it was actually even officially published. Mm. Wow. Um, and that's funny too, because you'd think like McCarthy would just want to write his own movie. <laughs> that's what he tried to do in the first place. I wonder what that screenplay and becoming screenplay to book back to screenplay, like how different those, those are. Yeah. Oh, I would love to read it. I, I don't know if it's actually available and like, he's got a, the collection of his papers at um, one of the universities in San Marcos. And I don't know if it's there or mm. if he's ever put it anywhere, but yeah, um, I've read, I mean, I not read, I've seen 
one of his screenplays adapted, um, The Counselor. Right. Which Ridley uh, Scott adapted. Ridley Scott. And Ridley Scott. I, okay. I, for some reason, I was thinking Oliver Stone. <laughs> no, yeah. That's, that's a Savages. Savages. Thank you. Oh, I don't yeah. know why those are in, in, intertwined in our minds. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, I, I am not necessarily all that confident that a Cormac McCarthy screenplay of this would be anywhere near as good as the Coen brothers adapting a novelization of or self-novelization right. of a screenplay. <laughs> right. Well, it is an interesting idea. I mean, it, it's a very, I mean, and so you read the book and, and, and I've mm-hmm. read, I read it a long time ago, but it, it, you know, it is, it is a cinematic book. Like I remember yeah. what, reading the book and then seeing the movie very quickly thereafter and being like, Whoa, this is, this movie is just the book really. And it's like mm-hmm. beat for beat. And it's all in the book. I mean, at least all of the 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 stuff that plays out really well uh, in the and as far as the action goes and uh, is in the book. And it just is sort of described in detail. And um, anyway, I just I thought it was really interesting that it's a really cinematic book. And now knowing that it was written by it was written as a screenplay, that kind of makes a lot of sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's different from a lot of his his other books, which don't really translate that easily to screen. I don't think, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole notion that blood Meridian is something that can't be adapted is like an ongoing debate. Mm. And yeah. So I, I think I completely agree. It's, it's like a very cinematic novel and, and they, they really translate like, like the whole opening monologue by uh, Sheriff Bell, like every ch- single chapter opens with a, a monologue by Sheriff Bell uh-huh. in the book. And so it's like a perfect way to frame the whole movie as you take excerpts and put them together and then frame the whole thing the way every chapter is framed in the book. Like it, I mean, I think they were the right people to adapt it. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you like sure. the movie better than the book or are they just different for you? Um, it's really hard to separate them out for me mm-hmm. now. Like when I was going back over this and and realizing that there are, there are like questions that, that are raised in the movie and it's like, well, the book addresses that, but does that mean that the Coen brothers vision of it agrees mm-hmm. with, with the uh, details that appear only in the book mm-hmm. or are they leaving things more vague intentionally? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I don't know. So I actually saw the movie before I read it. Mm-hmm. And so I actually had the, you know, like Tommy Lee Jones voice in my head, reading all those monologues, which was oh, actually, I couldn't believe they never got him to do the audiobook for it. Cause that would have been amazing. Yeah. That's interesting. Huh? but uh would have been nice i don't know that i have like anything like that i'm trying to think of like adaptations where i have a love for both the book and the movie but they're like separate relationships you know like i i have i usually have a strong preference for one or the other (laughs) i i can i can give you one example okay so for me i have a very strong relationship both with the book dune Dune. and the movie dune yep but they're very different relationships like i like Mm -hmm. them both but for very different reasons they're both very different uh in what they're trying to do and i think they're very different in like in the themes that are going on and um and how successful they can sort of bring out those themes uh but yeah i i and i think it was because i got into them at when i was really young and it just kind of hit me at the right point and i saw the i saw the movie and it was the first david lynch movie i had ever seen and it just was like kind of mind-blowing to me in in this way and that i loved the book so much that i sort of fell in love with the movie so but anyway but yeah i think of them as very different and for me, there's no competition there. Like some people are like, I love Dune, but I like the book, but I hate the movie because the movie 
takes all these liberties, cuts out all these parts uh, that I, that were like sacred cows for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, that I just don't care about that. I love all the extra details that Lynch adds. Um, right, right. And those are, I mean, he includes all the, like a lot of the important plot points, but the interpretation is so different that like this question of authorship, like who's getting credit for some, for the, the, the plot points and the characterizations like that. Edward, Edward raised the question it's not as messy with Dune because Dune just like goes off on its own freaking direction. Yeah. The movie, I mean, yeah. it just like runs off into the distance with it. Yeah, it almost feels like, have you seen it, Edward? I haven't, nor have I read it. I see. Yeah, it basically yeah. what happened is Lynch, it, you know, got out over budget and they, and it was going to be like three and a half hours or something. And, and the studio was like, there's no way. No, just, you can't do that. So they cut it down. And as a result, and the things that Lynch was ultimately interested in are not plot. Like he's never really interested in plot. And so having him direct a very plotty sci-fi book is like was a huge mistake in retrospect. But um, but you know he he, he the things that he's where it's good is where it's not really concerned with plot. Like there's all these little details he adds and cool like sci-fi twisty elements that are in there that are kind of sort of in the book, but he brings his own flavor to them. And then it is clear he has to do the plot because he's like, okay, fine, I've got to do the plot. And then it's like all rushed. It's like, oh, okay, and then this happened and this happened and this yeah. happened just to get through the plot. And it, the movie just kind of like wraps it up really fast in like the last 20 minutes. And it's it's like, and people, I think people in the theater were just like, what? This is garbage. Like it really, it's so clunky in the end. Um, but I forgive it every sin. He loves it so much. I thought it's going to be its own podcast. I, I feel like Lord of the Rings might be a, an example yeah. for a lot of people who are. Oh, yeah. Um, those are very beloved movies and obviously books. Um, I'm I'm sure people who are diehard Lord of the Rings fans have very different relationships to both of them. So I would imagine. I, I would going to say Lord of the Rings. It's a really good example. Yeah, I was going to say Lord of the Rings, but I actually have the movies have completely overtaken the books for me. I can't even imagine mm. the book without the movie like you I went just back, see the movie in your, I just in your see head the movie that and, tends and, to happen and I, yeah. I think what Peter Jackson did in terms of streamlining some of the stuff in the book I just I, I'm just like oh it's it's better oh no it's better I love it more yeah. I love it more I don't it, think you need to apologize for that well you know I mean the book is, I, is like the bible for some people I, I think that there are things that uh the Coen brothers did with no country for old men honestly that cut down like long plot elements that didn't really need to be there um, I mean, at least if you're going to adapt it into a movie, like I personally hold the opinion that typically the best way to adapt a novel is into a miniseries mm. where you don't necessarily have to rush through it. But this was like a really efficient, yeah. good trimming down, in my opinion. It's like a lean I, movie. I think yeah. they did a, a great job of cutting out the extraneous stuff and holding on to the right themes and characterizations. So should we do, just make sure we cover like the basics? Yeah. So, so yeah, so, back so, to so, basics. So here's the cast. We've okay. got, we've got four, we'll do four main characters. So, All right. and, um, uh, four, the, four dudes. Four there dudes. is a lady. Yeah. But we'll, we'll stick with four the main dudes. dudes. The, there's some, it, there's some good supporting ladies. Yeah. That yeah are like no, Carla Jean is great. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I think the main I would say the protagonist is Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin. That's he's like the protagonist. He's the person we're supposed to see the movie through his yep. eyes. Of course. Yep. Then there's also Sheriff Ed Ed Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, and then then there there are sort of two. Well, there's like one bad guy, <laughs> Anton Sugar, 
uh, Javier Bardem, who won the Supporting Actor Academy Award for this movie. Um, and then Carson Wells, played by Woody Harrelson, who who's like a MacGuffin. He's barely in yeah, it. But he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's so fun when he is. But I, yeah. I remembered. To his credit, I remembered him being a much bigger part of this movie. And then I rewatched it and I was like, oh, man, he's like already dead. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like He just shows up and then he's out. It is kind of remarkable that that he's he's Woody Harrelson and he's like a big name star. He in many in many. you know, he's, I mean, that's a Coen brother movie, right? They can yeah, get anybody to I know, come but in it for is three in, lines. Right. But it is interesting that he's injured. I think it takes like 45 minutes or so before he's even introduced on screen. And then he's killed off. 20 minutes later or something yeah wow. pretty close to that i think yeah, yeah. he's I, I think a lot of his character serves is to provide plot ex- or sorry character exposition uh, about Shigur. yeah that's right <laughs> mm-hmm. and like yeah. and like slightly nudge the plot forward oh. by being an intercessor is that the right word that's a good point yeah because he sort of knits together the um the the sort of the money man who's played by uh what's his name steven, steven root. root right yeah the uh, and so he kind of knits together the money man and the sugar, I guess. Like that's the tie there. And then, but yeah, he and he he. You're right, Edward's totally right. He provides some like character. He just gives a little bit of background. Right. You don't know much about sugar. He's a kind of total alien. Like how the hell did he get in Texas? Yeah, no question, no answer to that question. Maybe maybe McCarthy answered it. Um, but nope. he does sort of give this idea. Nope, <laughs> he does this. He's like he lives by his own his own principles. Right. Well, well, he gives we, that little speech. That's about true. Sugar. We we did we kind of in a way know that from the coin flip scene. But one thing I really think that he does well, and I to to your point, Edward, is that he. Um, uh, what you learn th- about Shakur from uh, Woody Harrelson's character is, um, is that he doesn't he doesn't actually care about the money. <laughs> like Woody Harrelson is like, I'll get you the money, and he's like, No, that's not that's not what this is about. I know where the satchel is. If you knew, you would have it with you. I could find it from the riverbank. I know where it is. I know something better. What's that? I know what it's going to be. Where's that? It will be brought to me and placed on my feet. You don't know to a certainty. In 20 minutes, it could be here. I do know to a certainty. And you know what's going to happen now, Carson? You should admit your situation. There will be more dignity in it. You go to hell. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me ask you something. If the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Do you have any idea how crazy you are? You mean the nature of this conversation? I mean, the nature of you. I think it's a really important moment, actually, because this is a moment where you realize, like, the th- this guy is not like a, a, an understandable, sensible human being that or rational human being that we uh, we can understand as humans, right? As other humans, like we can't even make sense of this guy's motivations. motivations. Yeah. Like, yeah. what is this? He's like an alien. And Carson Wells explains that to Owen when he says, like, if I was into cutting deals, why would I when I make one with this guy, Sugar? 
And he says, no, you don't understand. You can't deal with it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Although he does try to deal with him then in the next scene. Right. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sugar says, though, is like everybody says the same thing. Though, yeah, when a, that's when true. a gun when is pointed or down. when the chips are down, yeah. when a gun or uh, air gun or whatever is pointed at your head, <laughs> you're always going to try and make a deal. Um, so another thing we should maybe do is just like was like in, in 10 seconds, like what's the plot of this movie? And I was sort of thinking like it basically the beats are. Um, there's a, there's been a, a, a fight with some gangs over drugs. Llewellyn Moss finds them. He finds the money. He, he takes it back and then, but he decides on a whim to go back to bring this guy some water, this guy who, who was a lone survivor. Um, and then he's discovered by the, I don't know, by whoever the, the gangs come to clean it up and they get his truck. And then they have all this information on him and then they go after him. And then it's this setup between Sugar is sent after him. Sugar is sent after him to get the money. He's on the run. Sheriff Bell's kind of in the picture trying to trying to rein in Sugar and and save Llewellyn Moss. And um, they have some shootouts. And spoiler alert, that basically everyone dies except for uh Sugar. Walks away, uh, sort of, sort of, and um, but Luella Moss isn't like the entire him, his wife, the wife's mom, are all dead by the end of the movie, uh, and Sheriff Bell retires. Like he, he's he. This is like the 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 moment that like breaks him, and he has to he has to hang up his spurs. Loretta tells me you're quitting. How come you're doing that? I don't know. I feel overmatched. I always figured when I got older, God would sort of come into my life somehow. And he didn't. And I don't blame him. That's basically the movie, right? Like, yeah, it's just plot pretty much. It's, there's not much, like, plot there. Mm-hmm. It's It's more... Yeah, about a mood or something. It's yeah. pretty bare bones thriller plot mm-hmm. um, on the on the surface when you just like lay out what happens. There were just some things that were ambiguous that were like a little bit unclear. Yeah, um, well, tell tell me what which ones you have in mind because I mean I think there are plenty of them and I yeah, I mean one one is is um, there's a sort of a potential showdown between Sugar. And Sheriff Bell in the motel room. This is like the crime scene. He's coming back to the crime scene. You know, it's weirdly, it's actually like a, a kind of mirroring of the scene where that I was just mentioning uh, in the plot summary where um, where Llewellyn Moss goes back to the crime scene to bring the water. Oh, Bell comes back to the crime scene. I thought you were going to talk about a different mir- mir- mirroring. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really? Okay. Well, anyway, but I, I mean, right. It's like a coming back. Like the it's all, yeah. it's like dark. Right. But both cases and and he's sort of coming back and it's unclear why he's coming back. Right. I think that's actually kind of important that he, he these guys like make a decision and it's it, it's almost like against their better judgment that they're doing this. Right. It's almost like a stupid move. Like, don't do yeah. it. And he goes back and. OK, so the the way it's the way it's shot, this was totally unclear to me. And and and, and so um, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, Edward. So so the way it's shot, it looks like. Shigur is reflected in the knob or whatever, or whatever the 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 blown out um uh what is it the 
The keyhole? The, the keyhole, yeah, the blown out keyhole. It looks like he, you can sort of see like movement there from both perspectives. You see the perspective of Sheriff Bell looking in, you see movement behind, then you cut to Shigur on the other side and you see movement on the side of where, where Sheriff Bell is. Mm-hmm. But then I was, what was unclear to me is like he enters the room and he throws the door open and there's no way that Anton Shigur, who's like a solid like 240, right? He's a big guy. <laughs> there's no way he is fitting behind that door. That no. like once it opens. So then I'm like, wait, is he, was he there or was this cross cutting like actually like temporally distant? So they actually wasn't happening at the same time. Anyway, that was, I, that was my confusion. Yeah. Uh, this is one of those things where I think the book informs my reading of it. And oh. so that's, and it's, and it's a really, all right. My, the buzzer should have gone off. I'm, I'm venturing into book territory. No, Do book it. territory is where you we want to be You have to be a book yeah. expert. Yeah. We have, we, Justin doesn't remember. I, I haven't read okay. it. Yeah. So I, I looked this up uh, the other day because I was trying to remember the exact uh, way that this is mentioned. But in one of the opening monologues, uh, Sheriff Bell mentions having encountered evil and that how he knows that it exists because he walked in front of its eyes once and he was never going to do that again. Uh-huh. So my reading of that and from the way that scene plays out in the movie is that he was either behind the door or he was somewhere in the immediate vicinity and then definitely saw Bell. Mm. And Bell realized that after the fact. Oh, mm. yeah. Like that feeling that you have when somebody's watching you. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, well, yeah. he realized it also because he, well, what, what triggers him to go back to the room in the movie is that he's talking to his, I guess, the um, El Paso sheriff right, in the right, diner right, right. afterwards. And he mentions, there. like, you know, how do you, how do you wrap your head around this guy who kills a desk clerk one day and walks right back in the next day and kills a retired army colonel? Like it, it defies all logic that someone who would do something so mm. brazen. And that's what gets bell thinking like, wait, he walked right back into the crime scene. Right. And so then he goes to visit the motel room where Llewellyn was killed. Right. Right. So he potentially to maybe He's, he'll find him there. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's he's like, well, but he's, is he even prepared for what he finds? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We we know that much about his mo, and we don't know much about his mo from mm-hmm. Sheriff Bell's perspective. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. That's why. That's why I think that that's meant. I mean, I think the Coens probably made it so that the door swings and then there's nothing behind it, just to kind of make it ambiguous i find it so confusing and he's a and in that conversation with the el paso counterpart he also says he's a ghost right oh that's Mm -hmm. interesting so yeah yeah, like there's something like inhuman about about javier bardem's about um about sugar yeah it's funny that we all had different interpretations or that like it was a it's a confusing sequence because there's an insert he goes to the bathroom and there's an insert shot of like the window latch and i was like is that supposed to suggest he like somehow shimmied out the window again solid 240 seems unlikely (laughs) also i mean that's a guess i know i just just think it's really funny you're giving stats on sugar Um, he's a big boy (laughs) um and like the window would be oh it, d- it doesn't really make any sense. But in my head, I saw like they, for whatever reason, I'd insert a lot so shot of the latch. So I was like, is that supposed to mean he right. like escaped? But then I was also, we have a, we have a Coen brothers book and um, that author thinks that sugar is in the other motel room uh. that, um, that like 
he's trying to decide which door it is and he goes into the it goes, goes into, into one room, room and he, it's the, it's not actually the same room so it's a mirroring perhaps of when Javier Bardem uh, like picks the wrong room when he's trying to get the money the first time around in another motel scene that would explain oh because it. he put it in the vent and he retrieved it from the other hotel yeah, room right yeah. but we see that the vent has been opened we do. We also see in the side that, that, that the, is the sheriff different on in. the inside that wouldn't necessarily be big enough to fit the money yeah. satchel. Yeah, that's right. true. Yeah, at least not not in a way that it could be retrieved from another room. Like he might have been able to stash it just inside. Mm-hmm. So this is all like, very confusing. It's like a rectangular vent within a circular yeah. ventilation shaft inside. Mm-hmm. That's smaller. Right. Right. I think this is great. I think it's great that the movie <laughs> allows for this. I mean, they're purposefully giving us this ambiguity in this final sort of non-showdown showdown, right? It's an anticlimactic mm-hmm. showdown between the the superhero in a way and the supervillain. And it's led it, it we're led to think it's just completely ambiguous. Like like do they cross paths? Do they not? Does Shigur just like take pity on him and not kill him he easily could have killed him maybe he like he cl- tossed a coin and we didn't see it right or also, maybe he got the money and so he didn't have anything driving him more at that point mm-hmm. except for the the commitments to killing carla jean right yeah that's a last loose end <laughs> yeah so this now these other readings now also call into question for me who ends up with the money or what happens to the money because i had also interpreted it as sugar got his hands on it because he went back to the hotel room for it and yep. got the money. But maybe not. Like maybe the Mexicans got it. The other pe- the people who ended up killing. Right. Lou that Allen. was something you brought up when we were t- when we were watching it because because Laura was like, well, they were in there battling, right? And it's like, did they just like and they were go- looking for the money? Did they just like decide like, uh, let's just leave? Like Right. Isn't I mean, their it mission was, to retrieve yeah. the money? I mean, also to kill Llewellyn, but like, isn't the whole point that they want to get the money yeah. back? And did they not did they just like things got too hot and they had to leave and they had to leave them? Yeah. They couldn't find the money because it was in the air shaft or not um but now i'm not so sure who ended well, up with the money but it also that's yeah. such a cohen brother i thing. think it's it's ambiguous right i mean what do you think Edward? <laughs> i think so i i think yeah i was before i rewatched it this time i was pretty sure they're like oh okay he was he was in the room when bell showed up and he had just retrieved the money and he was behind the door but then i started like looking closer at like all the other details of that scene like the window that they panned to and all of that and i was like oh no, they very deliberately tried to make this ambiguous mm-hmm. and and creepy, and I think to to good effect. Like it, it it's probably better than just being like, "Oh, he was shriveled up real thin behind the door." Yeah, and just yeah. Like <laughs> managed to like I, pull the move that a five five year old playing hide and seek would pull. Yeah, yeah. It's so I find it, it, it in a way, but it is more disturbing that way, where you're just like unsettled. You're like, wait, why? What what's happening? Like I don't I don't know what is going on because I thought I knew it was going on. I thought I saw a cross cutting, so I expect like them, he opened the door and then like bam bam guns are gonna be blazing and like it doesn't happen. And so then you're just like, was he there? And you're just like left with this. And then the movie basically just ends. I mean, you get that like last little monologue and then that's it. And it it just sort of you're just like left unsettled in a way. And I think that is kind of the aim that they're trying to give give you leave you with this movie is this feeling of like. You're not, you know, interpretate. There's no kind of safe space with which it in within which to interpret this movie. You're always feeling like unmoored, Mm. Um, like you don't know where Shigur comes from and what motivates him. And, you know, that's the feeling that um, 
I call him Lee Jones. <laughs> the Lee Jones. <laughs> uh, oh, Sheriff Bell always has. He's just like, who is this invisible sort of demon that's like stalking the streets that I can't make sense of? Um, it's the youths. Yeah, it's true. It's, just, it's, it's the trolls on Twitter. <laughs> You're just like, oh, I can't. Ugh. The dismal tide. <laughs> Um, okay, so that's good. So now we have we have a good sense of what at least the complexity of that. that yeah, scene, I'm not sure we answered is, any any of our plot questions. Which is but great. Um, one of the most delightful things about this movie are just sort of like bemused, but not too surprised Texans just like being like, sure, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> yeah. He says, "Does do any people come in here without their clothes?" He's like, "It's unusual, but I'm not going to make a thing <laughs> of it." You know, <laughs> or just like the the motel, the the woman who owns the one of the motels, and she's just like perplexed why people want to keep getting rooms that don't make sense for how many bodies they have. Like yeah. she's just like that room has two double beds. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. That's, your- that's one of the the strong things I think this movie does really well is it, it captures like these small town Texan uh, characters that you only get like a snapshot of most of them, but a lot of the the dialogue and the, and the way that the these I guess most of them are probably character actors or locals who are mm-hmm. cast from the movie just really nail a lot of like little mannerisms and things. Like, do, do you guys have favorites of those supporting supporting actors? Um, I, he's one of the more prominent ones, but his his uncle Ellis that he goes to visit mm-hmm. late in the movie. Yeah, um, but guy. he has a much longer speaking role. Uh, the the border guard. <laughs> is actually probably right. my favorite nice. minor character in this one. Nice, yeah, I really like the uh, the the lady who runs Llewellyn Moss's trailer park. Yeah, and does, she can't does give this, out no information. Yeah, she does this <laughs> thing where with her body, where like when he's like, he just keeps asking her, and she kind of like moves her body a little bit, like and and then he just kind of smiles and walks off. And I I love I love that lady. Where does it work, sir? I ain't at liberty to give out no information about our residents. Where does it work? Did you not hear me? We can't give out no information. Yeah, she she gives him the stare down, and and she's like one of the few people he encounters who he like doesn't mess with. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't flip the coin for her. Well, you could sort of see his wheels turning. He's like, should I kill this lady? And then he there's like, and then the toilet the goes toilet off. flashes, and he's just like, I don't feel like killing two people today, so he leaves. <laughs> like that's how I interpreted it. He's like, I only have one coin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I like the motel out or owner manager whatever she is look at us we agree about everything oh that was Uh, your favorite too yeah that's who i was (laughs) no 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 no, no. there's the trailer park owner who you were talking about oh no no no. i like the the one the the double bed lady where she's just like yeah yeah, she's just so confused and he's just like it doesn't matter which room i get and she's looking at him like what like (laughs) you have to tell me this is how this works like she's just like you pick the option what goes with the applicable rate yeah Thank you, Edward. You, you know the right words. <laughs> Have you ever stayed in any in like a motel like that, Edward? Like when you were traveling okay, around Texas? So straight up, I stayed in that hotel. What? What? I I was passing through New Mexico and um was like passing through Las Vegas where they filmed a lot of it. Right. And I was like, well, I think I knew No Country for Old Men was filmed here. So I like 
quickly Googled it when I was trying to find a hotel. And I was like, oh, I could just stay at the one where the giant massacre in the hotel room happens. Come on. And it's just like a very inexpensive roadside motel. And I just like got there. I was like, oh my God, this is exactly like it is in the movie. Did you wow. stay in room one? Was it 138 or whatever? I, I don't think I had a choice. Uh, I should have asked for a map. You should have. <laughs> <laughs> oh but, my gosh. Uh, I was just like, oh, well, if I have to stay in a hotel in this town, I might as well pick one that was in a movie I really love. That's, That's so cool. Really I have amazing. more follow-up questions though. So so did did is are the interiors of the room like they are in the movie or are they different? No, I think they 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 set dress them, them a back bit. a little yeah. bit like probably would in the eighties. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're much more modern now. Cool. Oh, yeah. that's so fun. But like the out the exterior is pretty close. Wow. I don't know that I've ever stayed in a motel like that. I've stayed in the kind of like drive up uh, where all like where you like sort of it's not there's no interior hall. Everything's like right outside your door. I've stayed in those before. Yeah. Um, but they've always been like like franchises like the Best Western or something. So I haven't really stayed in basically a horror movie motel, which is that's what my that's yeah. in my head with the what nothing good happens in those motels. Uh, OK, themes. Well, I, I should say, I, I see this this movie and, and I guess by extension, the book really with Sheriff Bell as kind of like the rock and the center and mm -hmm. the the portal into into the world. I mean, I think the book is definitely structured that way in a movie with his opening narration and really his monologue at the end, bookending the whole thing. Like yeah. he's he's not your protagonist, but he's like your window into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you see you're, you're, a lot of it is just framed through his eyes, his reflections on the world based on his career as sheriff of Terrell County. And he, yeah. So, so one of the things you talk about is like becoming an old timer is the world changing. Um, or is it just like cyclical? Is it like something that everyone experiences when they get old is I think the world's falling apart and it's, they feel overmatched by it. What you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. I mean, it really, I think that's the thing that resonates with me the most is this idea of, you know, as you get older, you begin to, you know, you just slow down. You're, you you don't have the same energy and drive to distinguish yourself anymore. And you're just like, you know, I just kind of want to chill out. But you can't because there's always someone else coming up to like challenge you, right? To bring something new, to push you. And many of us just just sort of can they we just cede that space to the to the up and coming right like mm -hmm. like we maybe right now because of our ages are in the up and coming we're the up and comers but but i can very easily see that shifting that shift is already happening for me where you begin to start to see like younger people and all the energy and vitality that they have and you're just like man i can't keep up like this is it's hard and there's just so much to to do and um, and I think that that feeling is really, you know, that's like the theme, I think, that's woven throughout everything that Sheriff Bell is talking about is he's like he's comparing himself to the old timers. He's like, I remember when I was young and I was looking up to these people and how would they have dealt with the shit I'm trying to deal with, you know, mm -hmm. and this is this is tough. And and now I'm in their place and I'm I'm trying to grapple with that and and 
so I like that theme a lot. I feel like it's it's a, it is a universal theme because this is cyclical. It's ultimately at the end of the day, as as Alice points out, this is nothing new to you that you're experiencing. This it just feels new because it's something that you're going through right now as an aging man who's reaching retirement. Um, and but we all feel it. You know, it's something everyone will feel. Those young people who are up and coming and taking your position will feel it eventually too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, I like that. And, and that then extracts, that generalizes the movie outside of just like, okay, there's a psychopathic murderer and Mexican drug cartel and stuff. It, it's now become this more general thing about stuff that we can all kind of relate to in some sense, deal, you know, something we all have to deal with in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like, I, I think that's a, an important, um, I don't know, it's a theme I think I get the sense that Cormac McCarthy is really interested in and in the book it's it's you know anyway it's literally the title exactly (laughs) yeah yeah is there the deputy character in the book as well edward uh yeah his his deputy is is pretty much exactly the same he's you know kind of green and he's trying to his best he's so enthusiastic and kind of hanging on every word that bell says because i was thinking about that as like he he opens talking about how he um, Bell talks about how he he never lost, you know, missed a chance to t- to talk to the old timers to learn from them. Whether or not that's true, because I was thinking about that too later on when he talked when he sort of laments like when Sir and Ma'am yeah. go, like the rest is sure to follow. And these pe- these kids with their green hair and you know their their nose rings. There's always I think a feeling too when you start to age out and and that you feel a resentment towards the young generation for yeah. not respecting you. Uh, for, for not saying sir and ma'am or for not really appreciating what you've done. Maybe that there's also resonance there in terms of like the Vietnam vets kind of being left left behind and like living in their trailer parks and not really like getting the respect and the income that they deserve for what they've committed, what they've given for their country. Um, and yet like there is still maybe that's true. Some people don't res- don't respect Sheriff bell for you know for what he's done but there he does have a little acolyte too who's hanging on his every word and who you know if he were to do this monologue in 30 years is probably gonna talk about how he at every chance listen talk to the old timers (laughs) too yeah yeah. you know speaking of the title um so i guess it comes from a yeats poem called sailing to byzantium do you know sailing to byzantium yeah Yeah, so i I, it might just be interesting to here's the first um what is it, stanza or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, it says, that is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl, commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born, and dies. Caught in that sensu- sensual music, all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. Especially that last part, it really does sort of feel like that lament of like, you know, these people that don't under like they're they're not paying proper attention and respect to the 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 unaging intellect of like the wisdom that's of the prior generations that have been passed down that they have now at their um so I and I feel like that is part of the lament of Sheriff Bell um at the youth and everything. Um but it's also a it's also a like, you know, a like he's he's struggling to come to terms with his own mortality and his own, you know, breaking down like he's breaking down. He's not able to do the things he used to do. And he's confronting a, a violence and terror and um, 
you know, revolution that is completely foreign and alien to him. And so, you know, one one way of thinking of Anton Shakur is like he's this inexplicable alien demon who is like a ghost. And that's just how it is. There are just like these things in the universe that are like inexplicable and horrible. Another way to think of it is like, that's just what you feel about young people when you're old. <laughs> you just mm-hmm. They're just yeah. aliens. You're just like, I don't get you. You don't share any of my values. I can't make what sense of you. What motivates you? Yeah, what gets yeah. <laughs> So anyway, I don't know. <laughs> so Sugar is just like a personification of like. Yeah. He's the personification of the youths. Of the youths. <laughs> of the Twitter youths. Anyway. This wicked weird haircut and. Um, anyway, so that's my that's my read on the uh, I like on, that on the the sort of revolution, uh, right? The conservatism meets the revolution theme that is uh, that's that's at the center of this movie. I mean, another theme that that I think is is kind of the you know, and I I wrote two things here, but I really think they're kind of related. Is is this relationship between and this is like a common theme in in Coen Brothers movies, but this idea of the nihilism in that the world doesn't provide meaning for you you have to like kind of make the meaning yourself in your actions it's a very existentialist sort of credo that you know you have to choose how to find your it's in your actions that meaning resides and in the choices that you make it's not that you discover the meaning it's not there the world is this just absurd chaotic place and we indifferent indifferent exactly and we impose a kind of order and meaning on it through our actions and one thing where where and i don't know if this is intentional so i'm just going on a limb here but but one thing that's a a theme in a lot of existentialist work and especially uh sart is you have this idea that there is at the core of fundamental freedom at the core of all of us like we have to choose ultimately and many of us are so afraid of that choice, and and it, and this is it comes out in this notion of angst, with, where you you realize that like at any moment you could just throw yourself off a building. You realize that's in your power to do, and it gives you complete angst because you know there's nothing stopping you from do, except yourself from doing it. And so what we do is we invent these lies. We tell ourselves these stories, like, well. You know, I'm a. I would never do that because I'm. I love my family or something, and that's why I don't do it. And he thinks that's a that's bad faith. Bad faith is is telling yourself a story that we, that sort of lets you not choose because you get to put that choice onto something else. It allows you to just be like, well, I would never want to leave my family that way. That it's for them that I don't would never do that kind of thing. And he thinks, no, you choose. Ultimately, you can still choose, and and you're just sort of denying yourself that choice. Um, and so what I think is interesting is that Shigur is in this respect, like the ultimate person of bad faith, because mm-hmm. he, all of his actions are decided by coin toss. And the conversation that he has with um, Carla Jean, Carla Jean, thank you. I was looking up the character. Uh, <laughs> the conversation he has with Carla Jean at the very end brings this out because he's like, look, I just flipped the coin. You need to call it. And she's like what does it matter if I call it? Like you still have a choice. It doesn't, the coin doesn't do anything. It's just a coin. Like you still have to choose whether to follow the coin. And he's just like, call it. He's so (laughs) annoyed. He's just like, not happy about that. Um, (sighs) You know, this is how I live my life, lady. It is the best I can do. Call it. 
time I you was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No. I ain't gonna call it. Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. I got here the same way the coin did. But but again, it's because he has this fealty to this twisted code, right? He's like, this right. is my code. Like, I look, I said, I, here's, here's the thing. I said to this guy, I'm going to kill your wife if you don't do this for me. And he didn't do it. So, like, I just have to do it. And she's I'm like, mad at my word. Yeah, she's like, um, <laughs> what? you could still not do it. <laughs> right, yeah. You could still, right. Like, choose not to do it. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is who I am. I'm the kind of guy who does this sort of thing. And that is this idea of bad faith of, like, you're, like, you're beholden to, like, an ideology or something. And that, like, mm-hmm. what's what drives you. Um, what do you think it, he meant when he said, I got here the same way that coined it? By chance. By chance, yeah. but not, but, but he, does he really think he's just blowing in the wind? Like he just said, like, I made a promise to a guy and that is what brought me to Odessa. He made a lot of choices. He's, he's, I'm, I'm just I, like, I'm perplexed I by that feel, well, the worldview. I, yeah, the way I was thinking of it is like, he just, he, he does just flip coins all the time. He's always just like, I don't know. I'll just, you know, like, I, I guess I'll go to Odessa. Yeah. Now. Like, well, no, I mean, he's presumably he's working for these guys i don't know somehow he's working for the guys and they're like all right you're gonna do this and i don't know i kind of imagine i don't know if this is your reading ever but i kind of imagine that like he's he's flipping coins all the time in the back <laughs> and like because because he does some he's stuff like, what which, do i get for breakfast this morning well, he does a bunch of things which are kind of inexplicable like right he's working for these guys and they're like hey you mind sitting bitch and he's like all right yeah and then he she kills them <laughs> they're like wait i thought yeah. he was working for you <laughs> like what so I kind of in my head, I'm always like, maybe you would just flip two coins before you got there. And was- <laughs> <laughs> I'd never considered that, but I actually kind of like that reading because the, the fact that he kills those two guys out in the desert at night seems completely without reason. Yeah, it's like random. If know. he were motivated by money, it might make sense. That's right. But he's not. Yeah. No, yeah. And he's, yeah. he's not. He doesn't seem to care and about the not- money at all. Right. And Sheriff Bell tells a story about this guy who would like the sort of the first first beginnings of him feeling like he feels alienated from this world and, and then there's like this new brand of violence that's so much more terrible than when he was coming up he tells about the guy who killed a 14 year old girl and just said like it's what i've always wanted to do and if mm-hmm. you let me go i'll do it again you don't i mean it, it anto sugar is definitely a psychopath but he doesn't seem to take that much pleasure in killing either it all he also just seems completely indifferent to it as just part of his day like he's not like a he's not like a serial killer who like has a process and loves it you know like he's just sort of like ugh, flip a coin kill you here we go on with my day it's you've no idea what motivates him it's not even the joy of killing people yeah i think it's one of the really unsettling things about him is yeah you, you get the sense that he's driven by something and for within this concept of the plot he seems to have a purpose which is recovering the money but the money doesn't actually matter to him as far as you can tell. Yeah. And he even goes so far as to kill basically everybody who hired him yeah. <laughs> to retrieve it. Yeah. So like who he's actually even getting the money for by the end of the movie is a complete mystery. Yep. Yeah. It's so, I mean, it's just, it's, I think it is deeply unsettling and it's, um, and I think that is this idea of like, conf- we're confronting and this is the, this order chaos idea of like, we need to somehow 
impose order. We need to make sense of stuff. And like, he's like, not he prevents us from doing that. He's he's the world in this reading where the world just doesn't allow for these readings. Like we can we can do our best to try to make sense of this and that, but it's just never going to work. I mean, then that's a theme that that the Cone Brothers love. You know, like it's 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 explicit, most explicit in the Serious Man, where like you know this these characters like why is all this happening to me and like and then the you know and and the answer is basically like well. It just it's just rant it's just shit happens like there's you know it's not like you're it, we don't know we don't know yeah it's just like <laughs> stuff is happening and uh and um that's a similar i mean i the similar thing going on in like big lebowski where there's just so much chaos happening and it's all misunderstandings and random events that lead to other things of great significance but are just dominoes almost and it's it's all pre- premised on this complete misunderstanding and it's such a Right. And there the, 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 the take is, well, like the absurdity, you can find humor in the absurdity. There's levity yeah. in this absurdity. Right. Here it's like the absurdity is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love Lebowski. You know, my favorite joke in Lebowski, Justin. It's when he, he somebody's taking notes while on the phone. And Lebowski like goes like oh, pulls yeah. like a Scooby-Doo yeah. detective thing where he's no, like, I'm going to. Yeah. What, what, you, what were you No, gonna I was going to say the guy, the guy, he he's at the guy's. Jackie yes. yeah, 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 and and the guy gets a call, and Lebowski's like, "Oh, he's trying to hear what he's saying." And yeah, he, it seems important. Yeah. He's writing, something, he's writing down, something down, and then he takes off this the paper, like rips it off, and walks away. And Lebowski like is going to do some Scooby Doo <laughs> detective work and uses a pencil, that old move of using a pencil to shade to see like what the imprint of the of like the notes, and it's just like a pornographic drawing. <laughs> yeah, it's like a stick figure with a giant penis. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite joke in that movie is where is at the end when when they've got his ashes and they like oh, it blows in his Donnie's face. ashes and they it just blows right back in his yeah. face. I don't know that I could even pick a favorite joke for that movie. There's uh, so, so many good. little ones. It's yeah, so good. but I think I like I just I like that like you keep trying to find meaning. You kept like it's a puzzle. Yeah, you know, yeah. you think like there's like things are of import and that you're gonna uncover mm-hmm. something, and it's all just nonsense. <laughs> it's all just stick figures with giant penises. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what it. the world is uh, yeah actually that you know what if you if you read the book uh there's a there's a monologue where Andrew Jagger is sitting talking to Carson Wells and he talks about how the world really is just stick figures with giant penises oh, oh yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> no no but actually he like he goes on this like really long like diatribe about how he's um he's he sees himself as an instrument of fate and it I, I don't I haven't reread that part in a really long time, but I remember reading it after seeing the movie and just being like, shut up. I see. Yeah. <laughs> like you're ruining you're ruining like the the character that the I saw mystery. in the movie who's like so sparing with his with his dialogue and is like mysterious and just like, oh okay. So this is just like this is a chance for Cormac McCarthy to like throw in some of his like musings. Yeah. And imagine this character as like some some greater fours i'm just like no i mean it i think it works better the way the cohen's did it again yeah. one of the better things that they i think eliminated yeah it does seem that no i like the having they leave so much to your imagination and so much unsettled and it just le- lets you walk away being like what did i just see like what i mean in some sense it's very precise but in another sense there's all this stuff left out so you're just and you're trying to piece it together and it doesn't quite all the, the pieces don't quite fit and you, yeah it just leaves you feeling unmoored um 
I think one thing I realized when I rewatched it recently, and especially about Shigur, is that your impression coming away from the movie, or at least mine, for for a lot of the the memory I have of it, is that well, he's just like basically invincible hitman who just is like a ghost and like he's untouchable but he gets seriously injured two times yeah. in the course of this movie and he's actually like extremely vulnerable yeah but he but like he also he's like terminator and that he's just like oh like i have a flesh wound let me just do a real quick blow up a car move <laughs> break into a pharmacy shoot myself up with some lidocaine like yeah. <laughs> and then like keep going yeah, no. But yes, he, he does he totally get wounded is. for sure. He's but, limping but, around he's for limping, half this movie. Yeah, in the, yeah, when he meets. And Cosmo. near the end, he like you know breaks his arm in a car crash that's completely random. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't. And, I was under the cover, so that I do not like open fractures. I'm not a fan. <laughs> yeah. Just like, sir, you got a bone sticking out of your arm. That's a great. <laughs> it's, it's it's a great ending. It's such a great ending. Just just because it comes out of nowhere, and you're just like. Yeah, I know. It's like a car insurance oh. ad. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for yeah. real. <laughs> uh, it's Yeah, it's horrifying. Um, but that's the other thing about, like, what is motivating this guy, again, because he's going through a lot of trouble. Like, he yep. broke into a pharmacy, shot himself up with lidocaine, like, did some minor surgery on himself, like, you know, did some stitches to keep going. For what? Like, scary. he should just take the day off. Yeah. I would at that point. And what does he do after? Like, is this, he's doing another job? Like, yeah. we, you have so little context for him that you don't, like, does yeah. he go on Craigslist? Like, how does he, right. like, well, yeah, another... he already killed his employer. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. That was another Not going to get a good letter of recommendation. Such a great intro to his character. Um, the, the scene where he kills the guy with his handcuffs. Um, mm-hmm. Where you first see him, he's he's like in the back of a cop car, and that's the introduction to the character. You don't even see his face; it's mm. just a silhouette of him. It's mm. so good. It's so upsetting. You, uh, the scuff marks on the floor is an incredible detail. Oh, it's a yeah. great intro scene. But I was wondering out loud to Justin. I was like, "Do you think he was already hired by some part of this like drug deal gone bad to as a cleaner upper?" when we first see him or is that just like he was arrested for something else entirely different he gets out of that then he's just blowing in the wind and somebody else picks him up for a job like is his life just like he wakes up one day like he's just kind of moving from one thing to the next as he does feel like he just got there like money like the coin moves through the world and like is there a connection between the way we first see him under arrest and the rest of the movie or is that just like a string of events for him book says that he actually purposely got arrested just to see if he could escape wow (laughs) wow as like a complete and he like i think later talks about it if i remember right he he like laments it as like a vain act wow uh of just to like test himself and it was stupid and he like he's i think he's explaining this to carson Wells right before he kills him okay but yeah that's interesting um but like even without that context in the movie like it's still it's the like perfect way to introduce his character yep. as just like a force. Yeah. 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 And and the other thing that they introduce, and this is I wanna try to make another overarching theme of this movie, which is the cattle gun. What is that for? Will you, will you hold still, please, sir? You know, it is this device that is in a totally efficient system for killing it's an efficient system it doesn't leave a trace right like that's helpful there's no like casings there's no bullet to trace um it just 
it just kills you and then and you move on. But in the other sense, it of course also is like totally unwieldy. <laughs> like you have to you have to carry yeah. it around this like thing with a tube and like he has to, you know, he 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 manages to use it on a on um on at least that one guy or a couple of guys, but only because he's like lulled them into a false sense of security. Like like the guy they have to hold still. They have to well, they don't know why he has it. They're just like confused. They're like, what is this thing? Like, what are you doing to me? And um, so it's not like it's a great weapon as far as like when you're running around, you're not going to be able to. You got to really close. You got to turn the knob to get the air flowing. But what a creepy sound cue is that? That like the little amazing. Hiss? Oh, yeah. <laughs> amazing. But what I think this kind of all adds up to is it's this idea that like it's this thing of like it's just like the movie. The movie is efficient, precise, also inexplicable. <laughs> it's like, why would he you, you know, it's like it, use a more fit like in a in a certain way like use a better weapon like this would be a there was many better ways to do this you have this shotgun with that with the huge silencer the huge silencer you yeah. know but but like no he uses this one like for some reason and um and i just sort of think like and of course it's like incredibly violent like i feel like all these words that i was using to describe the cow gun are like words you could use to describe this movie like mm. inexplicable violent uh efficient efficient Lean. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, he primarily uses it to punch out locks. He only kills that true. one guy with the cattle gun. Yeah, I, I'm imagining he kills the guy in the who he's later cleaning out the bed of his oh, truck. Oh, the chicken farmer. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just imagining he kills that guy too. Yeah, that, that would make sense. It there's I feel like there's um, to his character there's a certain degree of ego that goes with using that to kill a person I because see. you have to get intimately close Super with someone. Close. Yeah, and somehow. Like, you know, you can use a shotgun from a fair range and take them out. But, like, you have to be able to, like, literally walk up to somebody after pulling them up in a cop car and get them to, like, ask them to voluntarily step out of the car and wait for you to put something to their forehead. Right. To use it. Like, you have to treat them, like, lull them in the same sense of security as a cow being led to slaughter. Yeah. Which is also just terrifying that he's able to do that. But, again, I think that that's maybe um partly because of like the very kindly trusting mm. nature of the kind of people in yeah. the region that he is operating in is like they're not they're not suspicious that someone's going to put a little piece of metal to their head and yeah. it's going <laughs> to instantly kill them right yeah i was taking stock this time of watching no country for men of like some of the other similarities to other movies of theirs like there were little mm-hmm. shots that i Notice from other things. What 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 are um, So from Blood Symbol, the opening monologue and establishing shots yeah. was one of them. Um the the nighttime uh like highway shots mm. of like driving down um kind of gritty Texas setting. Fargo also has a lot of like, nighttime shots on the highway. Yeah. The nice law enforcement officer hunting violent killers. Yeah. Um the when Llewellyn walks by the hotel clerk uh, desk and sees him like dead behind the desk is like when they pulls out of the parking garage in Fargo and sees the attendant mm. shot. Um, one of the long hotel hallways looks a lot like the hotel hallway in Barton Fink. I haven't seen um, Barton Fink. Gotta watch Barton And the last one was that when Shigur kills one of the, the Mexican um, cartel members in the hallway, he, he kills him while he's holding a machine gun and he keeps on, the machine gun keeps shooting at his hand when mm. he's dead, which is what happens to one of the gangsters in Miller's Crossing? Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. Those are the things that jumped out to me. There were yeah. just like a lot of little shots yeah. and sequences yeah. that like really felt like they had just pulled from their own repertoire. Yeah, it's yeah, almost like you're they're such quoting, a expert, quoting Edward. themselves. Yeah. Yeah, but it but it doesn't feel I mean, I think somebody like somebody like you, Edward, who's seen their movies and pays such close attention to their to their career would see that stuff. But to yeah. me, it doesn't feel like oh, a, yeah. like a like a it doesn't feel like a quoting movie. Like in the way that like <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like, mm-hmm. guys, I'm like mm-hmm. making a reference to my own movies. Like that's very obvious, <laughs> you know. But it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that. Um, no, no, no. I, I agree. I don't think it does. I, I think it feels like, like, well, either, either they're they're doing it in a self-aware way, and they're like, oh, someone might notice this, but it's a good shot, so I guess we'll use it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, are they? I mean, they're such, like you said, like from Blood Symbol is such a strong opener for their careers, like. They're good and they know what works. Yeah. And I, like if they reuse a, a shot or a similar visual style, like I don't think you can blame them for it. No, no, not at all. I mean, no. that's, that's kind of why I think of it as like a capstone movie in a way, like the thing that sort of encapsulates everything that they've been working on in their entire careers. Like it's almost like the kind of movie that you want to make as your last movie, right? That like it's right. looking back on your career, incorporating all the themes, bringing it all together. Although, of course, this movie lacks... There's some humor, humor but there, it lacks a lot of the kind of, you know, slapsticky humor that you get in other movies of theirs. Um, yeah. Although there are some very funny parts. Yeah. Well, and um, that's that's almost explainable by the fact that this was their first like straight adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, Cormac Carthy's not really like a knee slapper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they they said I think when they won the Oscar for this one, they said like when they won the screenplay adaptation award, they're like, well. You know, the only other offer we've adapted before was Homer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so we yeah. figured why not after that, why not start with Cormac McCarthy? Yeah. yeah. I think like I'm thinking about the humor in it though. I was thinking, um, I mean, obviously the like the color characters, the Texan characters. Totally, totally. But but also like I think you're so tense throughout so much so much of this movie that I start like laughing at inappropriate times. Like for yeah. whatever reason, when you because a lot of killings take place off screen. Um, yeah. And so, like, when he's like, oh, how do you, when the chicken farmer, he's like, how do you get to all the, what airport might you use? And then you cut and he's like, a, he's, he's cleaning the out thing. the chicken, the chicken feathers. Like, I laughed because it's oh, just yeah. like kind of like a, like a good cut. But like, yeah. that's, that's a, I mean, I, that's an uncomfortable laugh. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but it's also like relative to like the deathly seriousness of the entire movie. Like, yeah. Those are tiny little moments of relief yeah. from yeah. it. And I and I think they do that very consciously. I have a, a lot of things <laughs> that like they're that no control men brought up personally for me that made mm. me feel connected to it. So a lot and again, because I think I, I view a lot of this movie through the eyes of Sheriff Bell, a lot of the his kind of worldview and uh the perspective and the historical context that he embodies as like feeling that he's part of this legacy of like Texas lawmen and and not in the like uh, romanticized thing, like John Wayne sense of like old West heroes, but like in the actual very practical kind of gritty sense of it, like people doing a hard job in a very difficult place mm-hmm. and time. Um, like I grew up hearing a lot of that. Um, my dad was kind of a Texas Rangers history buff and my great great uncle was a, a sheriff in Donley County up in the Texas Panhandle, and he's he's one of those sheriffs who he's got a he's got a Texas historical marker on his grave, 
and was one of those who like didn't wear a gun, which mm-hmm. Sheriff Bell talks about in his opening monologue. Mm-hmm. And like, so just the world that, that his character comes from was very much like something that I had a context for yeah. going into this movie. And so it, it resonated a lot. And then just the characterizations all of, of all the, the like small town Texas people were very, very authentic to like people I had met, like visiting relatives and other things um, in the panhandle and, and parts of West Texas. And those parts just like, that's part of why I keep coming back to this movie is it feels like one of the more authentic portrayals of people that m- like my extended family and like the context, a lot of them came from mm. um, that. And um at the last picture show, if you ever watch that one, um, it's, it's just, yeah, it, it feels like an authentic portrayal of like a time and place and like a people that I have connection to through my ancestry. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's one of the big things about this movie that really uh, is affected to me. I can't imagine that like, that's anything that was intended apart from like, Oh, we want to make a movie as authentic about these time, these, this time and place. Yeah. But it's it's one of the things that really I think keeps me coming back because the suspense of the movie is gone once you see it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like <laughs> in a rewatching, you're you're not gonna yeah. you're not gonna feel the tension that you did the first time you saw it in a dark theater. Yeah. But uh yeah, just it's it's got kind of a comfy quality to me yeah. in that. It's like, oh I I recognize these people. I I recognize the world that Sheriff Bell is coming from and like the context that he's describing. And I get, I get his character and how he sees things because that's just kind of like a worldview that I had a lot of access to growing up. Do Laura, do you also being from, from the Texas area? I mean, do you have, any connections to the movie or, you know, my Texas roots don't go as far as Edwards do. Um, one side of my family has been in Texas for a couple generations, but my other side of the family is Midwestern. So, um, but I also feel like whenever I see Texas represented on screen, I like get a little like yeah. jazzed. I'm excited yeah. about it. And hearing Texas accents is like a warm blanket. Like even weirdly, when we watched totally. Thin Blue Line, I was just like, God, I'm loving when people say wind, like Winda, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> to roll down the window. Like I was like, I don't like that movie shouldn't be feeling like a warm blanket. But I just like love hearing the Texas accent yeah. and they do it really. Everybody does it really well. And um, and I didn't even hear. I mean, growing up in Dallas, we don't even hear it all that much. We don't. Yeah. Older people. My grandpa had a had a Texas accent. Mm. I feel like older people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of sort of older people in this movie that that are you know like the working in the various shops and stuff um that feel like when you go into a small shop that's not a walmart in texas like you you find these people they almost are like relics in dallas um i can Mm -hmm. imagine there's you know it's a different situation if you're in the panhandle um but i once went to like a i was at a gift shop but there's just the most texas lady i've ever met and she would just she said um um she said something was horseradishes instead of horseshit. Um, and uh, she said, she said, she said, people don't think, and that's why I'm so glad I'm not people. <laughs> like, and I think about it all the time, but I love like God willing and the Creek don't rise. I just, I love that stuff. Mm. <laughs> I just wish I were more Texan than I am. You know, I feel like an imposter taking the Texas identity um, because I, there's so little of me that I think real actually reads Texas, but mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, they really, I mean, 
one of the great successes of this movie that you guys are pointing out is is it's a is its characterization of a time and place and it just it is magical it does sort of transport you in into that place and it you know from a perspective of an outsider it feels completely just as you know it feels authentic of course i have no way of way of verifying that but but i think in a way that that's that's important too right that it sort of feels like this could be a real place like you, yeah. you know even though it's a fictionalized portrayal of some of some stuff and I, that in a way adds to the terror of it is that it's mm-hmm. it's the setting is so ordinary and mundane it's just like this is just people living their lives and then there's this yeah. chaos around them <laughs> right um, i feel like that and that just accentuates how gruesome the actual yeah. like violence you see is kind of like fargo in a lot of ways mm-hmm. like you got all these really nice well-meaning midwestern people and and all of a sudden these really horrible things start happening yeah and they have to just deal with it they had that i mean that's that's kind of the magic of the cone brothers i mean one of the one of the magical things is is that you have ordinary people just like dealing with extraordinary things and and i think you know we can all imagine ourselves trying to reckon with those things like what would we do Mm -hmm. in those circumstances and uh, by having this be very just sort of plain people in a way uh i think it it broadens the uh ability for us to i mean there's a certain whimsical um that you know they're they're almost wise beyond their way so i didn't i don't mean plain by like they're dumb or something they're they're quite wise and everything but they're but they're sort of plain in their values and attitudes towards things they're just like ordinary folk they're not superheroes yeah. super you know supernatural or have special powers or they, they feel fear and they bleed like everyone and they have to confront these great trials. Yeah. They're just polite, austere, amiable people yeah. for the most part. Speaking of Fargo. So, uh, should we, should we reveal our Cohen rankings? Did you, did you change yourself, Laura? Or are we basically going to be the same? Uh, I think we're going to be the same uh, pretty much. Um, so I think we may have like one or two different ones. Let's let's get it out there, at least for right now, as of late May 2020, this is the current ranking. Edward, do you want to go first yeah, as our first. guest? Sure. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to do what Laura did on, on the last episode you all did. And I'm these are not in any particular order. Unranked. You couldn't <laughs> decide. You couldn't decide. I'm going to choose anarchy on this one and just uh, project the rules. Well, it's tough with the comedies um, and the dramas. It's hard. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, no shame. Yeah, and and I, I gotta say, like this this is my list now, um, but like mood could make me like just tomorrow decide like you know what I really don't feel like I would want to watch that one for another year or two. So, yeah. and and you know it, it's weird like despite this being like one of my favorite movies and one that I've clearly given more thought to, like I kind of didn't even want to put No Country for All Men on there, mm-hmm. um, which probably doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense given how much I've been gushing over it for the last two no, hours. No, I think that's but... what's insane about the Coen yeah. brothers. I like in one episode I said that they were like masterpiece machines. Like they just there's so many of them. It's like it's hard. It's yeah. hard to make the five. Yeah. It's hard to yeah. make the five. I I think I may have like watched that one out for now. So like that okay. was why I was thinking like I I don't know that I get much more appreciation for for their country for real men the From more I watch it at 11. this stage. Yeah, okay. yeah I get Fair it. Enough. I get it. Yeah. I, I wound up leaving it on there but you know what i'll i'll swap it out for the one i trained it okay so first one is oh brother where art thou uh miller's crossing oh this is great yeah Yeah. 
a serious man is great inside Lewin Davis. Uh-huh. And then I'll, I'll swap out no country for men for true grit. Oh my God. Oh, yes. wow. This you, is we amazing. We have zero of the same ones, uh, Edward. That's awesome. This is You're kidding. Amazing. Wow. No. This is great. Okay. So, so <laughs> really quickly before we, before we all share, but so, so I, I'm curious, like, like when you are considering a question like this, like, like what would be your top five favorite Coen Brothers movies? Like what uh-huh. things do you, cause of course it's open-ended. So like what sort of things go into your decision as far as how you want to, what, which ones, you know, make the cut and why, why are they making the cut when, when you're, when you're making that decision? Um, it's a really hard an- uh, question to answer about theirs just because their movies are so different and you're having like, you know, I'll, I'll watch a movie for a very different reason than the reason I watch like another one. Yeah. Um, and you know, again, this it all depends on, on mood or whatever, but I guess these are the ones that I probably return to the most and feel like I'm still going to get something out of the more mm-hmm. I watch them. Mm-hmm. Um, like the big Lebowski was really close on this list, but, uh, again, that's one I've seen probably so many times that I just, I'm kind of burned out on it for now. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it, it's, it, it's a movie that just has so many, like when y'all were saying like your favorite jokes were, I was like, I don't think I could How, even can you answer pick? that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is just such an endearing movie for me, especially with the, the soundtrack that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Miller's Crossing is such a perfect genre piece um as you know like a 20s gangster movie that has such a twistingly complex plot and such strong performances and again a great sense of time and place and the dialogue is like i feel like a quarter of the dialogue is like a completely disused dialect of like 20s slang Uh it's it's great um the serious man just is hilarious and kills me every time i watch (laughs) it yeah um Inside Lewin Davis, for many of the reasons that Laura mentioned on a previous episode, I think is one of my favorites. It's a, yeah. it's a really captivating uh, movie, and it's like such a depressing mood flick <laughs> in so, yeah, in some totally. ways. But, yeah. but at the same time, like the music is is really engrossing, and uh, and it it just has that, I don't know, um, Oscar Isaac just. I know. Is, I, you can't can't get enough of that guy and he just he's just so perfect in that role yeah um and then true grit is is one of those i think the reason i wanted to put that one on there was that was one of the cases where they adapted something that had been adapted before right and they weren't remaking the john wayne movie mm-hmm. they were going back to the um charles portis novel which I've read. And like, again, just like no country we in, they adapted it really faithfully mm-hmm. and even, even managed to like adapt like thematic elements into it that would only appear if the whole thing was being narrated by Maddie Ross that you lose when you're seeing it on screen and you're not reading it through her narration. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of other ones. Like I'm, I know a lot of people don't like burn after reading and hail Caesar, but I've really enjoyed those too. But yeah, I'll stick with I'll stick with those five. I think actually. What, I think what we're we're learning here is that Edward is a much more serious Coen Brothers fan than than both of yeah. us. Yeah, because those are some yeah. of those are are kind of are I would have to say somewhat deep cuts in a way. I mean, they're all movies that are like, you know, they you know I, we've seen them, but like I feel like 
uh, you'll see none of them are on our list. Yeah. And I feel like okay. our list is very, it's much more pedestrian, I think, by yeah. comparison. Yeah, I told us and I was like, ugh, my five is so like boring because it's like all the obvious yeah. ones. But ours are, I, mean, ours I was are very picking obvious. the obvious ones. So you thought that you were picking, okay. Uh, yeah. So maybe well, what's here, obvious isn't obvious. Yeah, now, now you got me really curious. Okay, all okay. Right. Well, I, I just feel like... Should we say them at the same time? Oh just, I'm God. kidding. <laughs> is it the exact same list? No, I, I well, think I'm not the sure. same five. All right, you go with yours first, and then I'll see if I've like tweaked my two and three differently. But you're going to see why mine are like super basic. I mean, maybe <laughs> there's only one outlier here. But okay, so oh, no. number five, No Country for Old Men. Uh, number four, Fargo, mm. which I feel like it's just like so obvious. Number three, Raising Arizona, which I love. Uh, <laughs> I do love that one, too. And number two, Blood Simple. So maybe that's like the only kind of off off the beaten path one that's a deeper cohen cut yeah, yeah. Uh, i really love blood symbol and then number one big lebowski so i feel like that's the yeah it's, yeah i mean that list is pretty so pretty pretty yeah uh, mine went uh five no country four raising arizona Look at three us. blood simple two <laughs> <laughs> two fargo so fargo's higher for me and then and then one lebowski so we just we have the same played, list. yeah. Jeez. We just played with two through four. Um, um, well, rough. so for me, the, the, <laughs> the what went into making this list was um, uh, a lot of it is rewatchability, and um, and you know it it might also just be that you know I haven't seen Miller's Crossing in a long time. Um, I have only seen uh, the ones that you mentioned. Uh, I've basically only seen. For each of them, I've only seen it once, except for Serious Man, which I've seen a few times. For a while, Serious Man was in the top five for me, but mm. but it it for some reason it like left the top five. I don't know. It feels like it's exactly it's like a movie written for me, and yet I like and I <laughs> loved it in theaters, and I love that parable it begins with, and how that like sets the whole sort of it just sets everything tone. Yeah, yeah, the tone for the entire movie. But then I don't know what it was like. I watched it with you, and I I like was like then I was like less excited about it. I don't know why. But anyway, um, I do think we have a recent raising Arizona recency bias. Yes, because that was the one where I was like that wasn't fun, right? And I didn't remember it being great. And then and then we rewatched it for Summer of Cage, and like it was so high on our Cage ranking, yeah. and we were like both in love with it. So I, there is a re- really so really good. Maybe I, if we revisited some other Coen's brothers, that's that could what I'm shoot thinking. Up. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Is is there's that, and I I feel like there's like a. There are some Coen brothers I haven't seen. So I haven't seen Hail Caesar. I haven't seen Lady Killers. I haven't seen Barton Fink. Uh, I haven't seen Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, yeah some of those I haven't seen. I like Lady Killers, uh, Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. Lady Killers is pretty much like every man who says wasn't it's not there. Great. Right. I feel like though, so, so Edward, so it sounds to me like Coen brothers are kind of, they're like, you know, pretty high on your top, on your list of directors. Like you, you, yeah, really I'll, I'll, I mean, I've, I'll see pretty much anything they put out. Like I, I, it's a shame that I haven't a personal shame that I haven't seen like three or four of their movies, but they've made a lot. I've always heard we're kind of meh. Right. But, um, I just haven't put in the time to actually watch them. But I mean, like even like they're, they're always doing something different and fresh. And I, I mean, even if it's something they've done before or like thematically something they've done before, like, no two of their movies are like alike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we just have to really quickly talk about Sugar's hair. Okay. Right? Ooh. Because, yes, I mean, please. Yeah. I think, Edward, like, you know some details about this. I seem to remember you telling me, like, that you tracked down where they got the idea for this hair. Really? I, yeah. I tracked down the source, but I haven't actually gotten to clap eyes on the source yet. 
Okay. Um, you did some serious detective work, but like a lot of the reviews, every like I feel like I, I read a few reviews for this movie, and everybody has to mention the hair because it's absurd. The hair is absurd. It like is the only thing that might sort of like undercut his complete frighteningness, or maybe it adds to it. I don't know, but it's it's like a it's a funny haircut. I think uh, A.O. Scott says something about him being like a beetle from hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Everybody has to remark on like how dumb his hair well, is. Well, here's my hypothesis. So could you imagine that guy getting a haircut? <laughs> I'd be like, all right, sir, what do we do? And he's like, this coin has been <laughs> traveling for 22 years. <laughs> and you're like, uh, what? <laughs> do you want like You think a he chose this, chose this particular haircut on a coin toss? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what he did. Oh, I was sort of thinking he just cut his own hair. Uh, right? He's like, so he's just not like, walking into a supercuts. Yeah, he no supercuts. He's just like, he's just like, oh, uh, he, first of all, here's what he does. He, he lights a, he, he lights blows a, up a car. he blows up a car so he can go into a pharmacy and steal some scissors. <laughs> then he goes in and he cuts his hair and then, yeah, and then he's like, all right, I'm done. Um, <laughs> on to the killing. No, I like the coin toss hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> Like heads, I will go for the page boy. I think you just have this in mind too, because like we're giving each other quarantine haircuts, and yeah. we look about oh as boy. good as Anton Sugar right yeah. now. So. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, that's going to be my cut. Is the Anton Sugar? <laughs> uh, can you? Do you think you can handle the Anton? Yeah. All right. I think we should do it. Okay, Edward, please tell okay. us your inside information. Yeah. So they a couple of uh, like interviews. Apparently, there was a book that a friend of Tommy Lee Jones uh, named Bill Whitliff edited. And it's a photo book of souvenir photographs from a, uh, basically like a red light district in a town right across the Mexican border, like not far from where this uh, story is set. And so it's like all from around that time, like late seventies, early eighties. And so it's all these like cowboys and like oil workers and other people who would just like, across the border to have a good time with the prostitutes there it's called boys town la zona de tolerancia and it's apparently there's a picture in this book and it's not digitized and i haven't been able to find it in the library but it's a photo of a guy standing at a bar dressed like anton chigur and with that haircut <laughs> and that is like the entire basis for his look it came from like one photo in a book of like cowboys hanging out with prostitutes <laughs> wow. in the, the Texas-Mexico border. Um, and I, it's yeah, trying uh, to find it's $140 on Amazon. Oh, oh my right. gosh. God. I don't, Do you have like a, like an alert on it? Do you just like check in every now and again in case you can just like, <laughs> like find one on I eBay? I keep waiting until I'm going to be close to a library that actually has it in stock. Yeah. And, and when right. I, when I was still living in Princeton, I, I could have gotten it from special collections. And I just didn't, didn't mm -hmm. do it. Yeah. But I really want to like scan that photograph. Maybe just when so you make I it can, back like, to Texas, it. Edward. It's going to be maybe there'll be more of those in circulation when you go mm. back to the promise. Is there land. a genre of movie that you would want the Coen Brothers to play with that they haven't done? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, so I feel like most of their movies are set in the U.S., right? Like that's mm, yeah, that's a pretty strong like they they kind of just tell. Americans are they're like the Ken Burns. Yeah, yeah. Of, <laughs> of genre films. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. Um I honestly they they I read an interview with them that said they had like a really brutal spaghetti western mm. script that they'd written that they mm. wanted to produce but it was like pretty pretty pushing the uh boundaries of violence and they weren't sure anyone would actually produce it. Hmm. Um but like they've done westerns like two and a half times now so yeah. I, don't, I don't know if they would ever actually bother i 
I don't know. I'm game for whatever they put out. Yeah. Frankly, um, that's a really good question. Though. What about you, Lord? Do you have thoughts on this? I feel like they've toyed with horror, but haven't done horror, straight up horror. I feel like. Well, I was actually going to say that this, think is, this a is horror, horror? movie. That you was going to be my claim about the genre, but yeah. Okay. No, so. I mean, I I think you're right. I mean, I think we we were talking about Michael Myers where yeah. we with Anton Sugar. Um, he does have some Michael Myers vibes. Oh yeah. Um, what's also horrifying this idea that like that there is this inexplicable whether or not it's killing you it's just the inexplicable is itself right. horrifying but um yeah i i was sort of thinking like because they immerse themselves in the genre so thoroughly it would be kind of interesting to see them go in for a genre that has really clear boundaries like fantasy or science fiction right like mm. I just feel like be we just i don't want to see like if what they I, could do yeah. it right like and i think they i think they could but i just what what are they going to do with with that in the way that they they can immerse themselves in noir or i don't know in, in these crime sort of genres and and you know weaponize the expectations of the genre against the viewer um i don't know, I just think it could be fun so yeah i i think they and you're you're making me think more and more about like the actual world threads that they kind of do and like they stick to pretty grounded stories yeah um, and place is so important yeah so that's what i think is hard for us to imagine science fiction like if it's not a place that we can have a reference to like what are like the America like what the, are like America the sort of in the future okay but like what are you know what i mean what are the like the like uh girl next door people of mars yeah <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I, I what, don't know. What small role can you put Steven Root in? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, obvi- yeah. He's obviously going to be playing like a junk trader. Um, that's how he would he would be a junk trader. He did trader a lot with a couple lines. He was good in this movie. He's great. He's always good. Yeah. Yeah, but um, so yeah, we'll we'll definitely have you back. And uh, thanks so much, Edward. This was great. Uh, and thank y'all. Do you ha- uh, usually at the end of podcast you want to have people plug something, but uh, I don't. Do you want to plug anything? I got nothing. Twitter profile. The state of Texas. Instagram. Yeah, I was going to say, plug Texas. Plug Texas. Go to Texas. (laughs) Texas rocks. (laughs) We're moving back there in like two weeks. So, really? Oh, congrats. That's great. Yeah, it's a a relevant plug. That's awesome. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.